Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome, history friends, delegates all, to episode 16 of the Delegation Game. In the previous episode, our attentions were centering upon the Clemenceau Directive, that incredible initiative which launched several thousand soldiers and volunteers into Russia under the leadership of an Australian, General McKay, in the name of defeating Bolshevism once and for all. 
The votes have been counted for that and the German blockade proposals as well, but we won't be examining the fallout for the Russian mission in this episode. As a reminder, because I'm sure most of you have forgotten by now, there won't actually be an episode next week because I'll be away for a wedding in Slovakia, so when we return, then we'll examine the consequences of the Clemenceau Directive, as well as, hopefully, be a great deal closer to hammering out that final peace treaty with Germany. You see, it's time to get real, dear delegates. You all have a bit over a month to get the final treaty with Germany over the line, and so far only a suggestion of a peace treaty with Germany has actually materialised. You all seem very excited about launching schemes to take away far-off lands or applying your own modern interests to conflicts which were in play a century ago, but don't forget the main reason you're all here. It's to make an alternative version of the Treaty of Versailles, hopefully solving the German problem in the process and making a peace which actually lasts. I've been told you'd all like me to work up epilogues of some sort on each of your characters, and I'd have no problem with doing that, but the legacy your character leaves behind won't exactly be glowing if they didn't manage to fulfil the main mission they had in going to Paris in the first place. For the record, our final episode of the Delegation Game will land on Saturday the 6th of July, but that will largely be a conclusion episode, so don't expect to still be scheming by then. For all intents and purposes then, when we return in two weeks for episode 17, we'll have four full episodes to get this done. And if we don't, then the alternative world you all leave behind will be even worse than that which the real peacemakers created. Consider this a gentle warning then, to get your act together and start contributing to some kind of peace treaty already. Start by thinking of what your avatar might hope to gain from it, then imagine what kind of world they'd like to leave behind. It would be great if delegates began working together with more gusto, especially because at this time in the real Versailles narrative, the treaty was essentially finished and it was only awaiting the German reply, which would mostly be ignored anyway, as we'll see in our main Versailles narrative. We haven't even given the Germans a chance to reply in our story though, and they are a pretty important part of this story. I managed to get my greedy paws on a draft of your German peace treaty so far, and it contains many good points, but it should be up for debate by at least the delegates representing the Big Four by this point. This is when the Minor Council will also play a role, and for those that weren't aware, I'm using the Minor Council mechanic as a kind of substitute for the Plenary Council meetings. If you think the Minor Council is worse than useless, and a little more than an empty house for the ramblings of empty statesmen, then you'll have an idea of how the contemporaries of the Paris Peace Conference felt about plenary conferences a century ago. In addition to these updates, I should make you all aware of a whoopsie which I'll be fixing in this episode. Recently it was brought to my attention that a proposal for responding to violence in Palestine was passed. Unfortunately though, not enough information was available at the time, thanks largely to my running through the scheme which brought us to this situation last week. In short, it wasn't the case that the Jews launched some kind of uprising, but that the Arab Kingdom, which had been propped up by the British, French and others, had effectively splintered apart thanks to independent risings from relevant Arabian leaders. This provided Jews with the opportunity to act, hence their attempts to make a Jewish state, but it was not the Jews that made all this happen. Because this was the situation created by the scheme, the vote which was carried doesn't really make sense now, so I consider it void. Sorry about that, but if you wish to readdress the situation, please propose another vote now that you have the facts at your disposal. Again, I apologise for not making everyone aware of the situation on the ground, but you can't win them all, or in my case, even most of them. 
It's also been brought to my attention by some concerned delegates that some avatars have been playing a bit fast and loose with realism. So in this episode you'll see some of the consequences of committing to each and every front which might be of interest to you. While it is true that proposals and schemes have to be respected, it is also true, as I said in the beginning of the game, that we must operate within the realm of realism for this game to work. If you're paranoid about what I'm talking about, don't worry too much. Just know that nobody is in possession of any god-tier articles of clothing that grant invincibility. At least not yet, so the rules of war must still apply. Other than all these warnings and updates, delegates, I think we're ready to begin. So today's episode is split into four different scenes because we have a good bit of ground to cover. So without any further ado, let's do further. Gentlemen of the British Empire, you are most welcome to my residence. Please speak clearly and without too much haste, as Sir Morris Hankey, seated in the corner over there, will be doing his utmost to record our conversations for posterity. The British Prime Minister smiled around the room, his whiskers lifted by the genuine feelings of contentment and security which the company granted him. The room itself was impressive. Once again, the Annabay Hotel had provided one of its most sumptuous rooms for the Prime Minister's lodging, but David Lloyd George had also been granted exclusive use of the adjoining Imperial Room, a large open-plan conference room anchored by that common staple of the Annabay Hotel, a polished oak table. Paintings of the proprietors of the Annabay Hotel and a few photographs of them with members of British high society adorned the walls, while the room was kitted out with several desks and bookcases containing floor-to-ceiling collections of books, mostly on international law, with chandeliers consistently catching the eye for good measure. It was a room, in other words, that was fit for the purpose of housing the greatest collection of nations that ever banded together under a single banner, this banner being the Union Jack. It remained to be seen whether there was enough space for all the egos as well. Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam stood up from his chair which was next to the Prime Minister's. The minimal whispering vanished as the representatives of Britain's Dominion delegates waited in anticipation. Before me is assembled some of the greatest and most respected statesmen in the world, Fitzwilliam began. More importantly, gentlemen, you will represent the Empire and its civilising mission. I would ask, before we begin though, that we hold a moment of silence for General David McKay, who is currently leading the forces of liberty against the Bolshevik tyranny at great personal risk. The request was duly obeyed, though the Indian representative took the opportunity to glance around the room rather than bow his head for any kind of contemplation. Fitzwilliam then stood back up. Thank you, gentlemen, and we now must move to our first order of business. Will the Newfoundland delegates, Mr. Owen Lind and Arthur McCalville, please rise? The two Newfoundland delegates did so, each man evidently eager to speak. Arthur McCalville began. Thank you, Sir Arthur. Gentlemen, you know why we are here. We are here to make peace with Germany and end the repressions of war. Yet, as my colleague from St. John's has assured me, we are also here to make use of the opportunities which this World Conference affords us. With this in mind, we are greatly pleased to present Newfoundland's Declaration of Independence from Canada. This document contains principles which are very dear to my countrymen, who suffered well out of proportion of their population in the war. You know Newfoundland as a small, proud country. Now its position in the Dominion family of nations is guaranteed, and its sovereignty will not be compromised or forgotten. We have much love and respect for our Canadian brothers, but they, as do we, 
understand the differences which distinguish our peoples, and I am thus pleased to present this document to the Conference of Dominions here today. McCallville then took his seat, and Owen Lind, standing, took a deep breath. I offer my warm thanks to my colleague for his speech. I now offer the aforementioned document which you have in front of you. For the benefit of those present, I will now read this document aloud. It reads as follows. <clears throat> the Dominion of Newfoundland and the Dominion of Canada wish to have it expressed at this conference, this auspicious gathering of all the nations of the world, that we wish to be recognised as having joined their esteemed ranks. We wish to express with the utmost clarity that we are independent nation-states, subject of none other than our benevolent King, George V. May God bless him and protect him. We wish also to make it known that we are independent states among the concert of nations, but that we are wholly free and independent of each other, and wish that all those assembled states here recognise this. To this end, we wish to settle the few remaining matters outstanding between our two great nations, so that from this day to the end of days we shall remain in close and equal fraternity. The matter is being included by this declaration or set out below. Now, gentlemen, I will not bore you with further details, but suffice it to say Newfoundland and Canada have resolved to proceed by recognising the de facto independence of Newfoundland as a de jure rule of international law. You have before you the distinct terms of this arrangement, and if any issues with its terms materialise, please do not hesitate to contact me or my secretary. Thank you. A short applause followed, and Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam rose to his feet. Gentlemen of the British Empire, may I offer my warm congratulations on resolving issues such as those so manfully and admirably. At times we may be loath to forget that the machinery of diplomacy can, in fact, move smoothly with just a little lubricant. Said lubricant is often consumed in too great an amount. However, gentlemen, it is best when this lubricant takes the form of good and hearty relations. Dildo, I understand, has enjoyed such lubricant, for it was at Dildo that Canadian and Newfoundland relations were formalised and confirmed. A terrible incident was averted, and as I understand it, the arrest and subsequent release of some French-speaking Canadian citizens of the Empire avoided a serious incident. Tensions are of course high at the moment, but the Prime Minister and I thank you heartily for proceeding so cautiously and effectively. A few shouts of hear, hear were heard from the Canadian delegate Sir Robert Borden, who promptly rose to his feet as Fitzwilliam sat down. Gentlemen, I do not wish to waste time discussing matters which have already been discussed, but might I add that Canada's government was greatly impressed by the demonstrated ability of the Assembly at St. John's in resolving this matter of dildo. It is my sincere wish, as expressed in the joint resolution forwarded by Canada and Newfoundland, that our two dominions can coexist as gainfully as before. Thank you. Louis Botha, the South African delegate, then stood up. His silky voice and expressions had captivated his own countrymen back home, and they were bound to have as considerable an effect here. My friends, Louis Botha began, it has come to the attention of the government of South Africa that a treaty regarding the confirmation of peace with Germany is under consideration. Within that treaty, I believe it is detailed the terms of Germany's colonies and their fate. Gentlemen, as you know, we have regretfully cast aside the notion of mandates several weeks ago, for this structure was felt to be insufficient. However, the government of South Africa wishes to communicate, through me, its heartfelt desire to achieve parity with its African neighbours by uniting with the formerly repressed German colonies in the west and east of the continent. Such a union would not only guarantee the repairing of that troubled corner of the world, it would also go one step closer towards 
forging a continuous land bridge from one tip of the huge African landmass to the other, with proud British red and good British engineering paving the way forward. I urge you all to work towards the confirmation of this treaty then, and to help South Africa in this quest. Thank you. A short applause followed, and Sean T. O'Kelly then rose to his feet as Lloyd George rolled his eyes. Esteemed delegates, you may not know me, but I represent only the second newest official Dominion partner in Ireland. Thanks to compromise and negotiation, the two sides of my country have been brought together as one, and I wish to express my sincere thanks to the late Justice Joseph Doherty in particular for this achievement. Finalising the details of this contract has been taxing indeed, and I have not been present for this conference as much as I would have preferred, but recently our negotiations have reached a significant breakthrough, which is a relief indeed for all peace-loving Irishmen who spurned the terrible message of violence implicit in the dreaded rising from several years ago. I also hope to impress upon you all today the importance of sovereignty in the family of dominions, even among those who we may be tempted to see in a lesser light due to questions of race. I must emphasise that Ireland has suffered similar discrimination, but it brings me great joy to cooperate with my fellow dominions, particularly those of Asia, in bringing about further progress. As if on cue, Prince Ganja Singh then rose to his feet. A tall, broad man with a long, luxurious beard, dark eyes and a turban, this time a burgundy one, Singh cast a dashing figure. As the Prince of Bikaner, this was a requirement, but it was harder to make his voice heard with the prejudiced atmosphere that the conference could sometimes promote. As soon as he spoke, of course, Singh knew that his audience would forget their differences, and so he moved to make his point while he had their attention. Gentlemen of the Empire, I am Ganja Singh, an Indian prince, and subject of His Majesty, King George V. Today I wish to briefly express my humble wish that, like Ireland, the people of India will be granted their right to autonomy within the family of the British Empire. It is often said that India was the jewel in the crown of the late Empress and Queen, Her Majesty Victoria. Today, this jewel gleams bright, but it does contain some imperfections. The Indian people are varied and rich in culture and history, Yet, what keeps us together and united is our enthusiasm for the British Empire project. It is a civilising mission from which India benefits, and it is a relationship which, many of my countrymen believe, needs to be taken to the next level. I therefore formally request that the dominion status of my country be considered, and that the direct rule of the British Crown be replaced with a regime more befitting His Majesty's Government's commitment to democracy and self-determination. Thank you. Aside from the enthusiastic applause of Sean T. O'Kelly, the silence of the other delegates was telling. Fitzwilliam shifted awkwardly in his seat before standing up. I offer my sincere thanks to Prince Ganja Singh. Please note that as soon as is prudent, we will consider the idea of Indian Dominion status. You have our respect and admiration for bringing it forward in so modest and composed a manner. Not at all in the style of some of your less civilised countrymen, who plundered and murdered across the subcontinent in 1857. I am thankful to have your confidence, gentlemen. And if that is all, I believe it is time we move to the question of Russia. As you know, the expedition set off on the 19th of May, amidst mostly favourable conditions. Since then, there has not been much information, but what we have is mostly positive. General McKay makes good progress, and his troops are fighting with great distinction against the Red Hordes. In fact, I would hesitate to add that... 
At that moment, a door opened and a minor official from the communications office strode quickly over to Lloyd George. Fitzwilliam knew that he was meant to keep talking, but such an act could only mean either urgent or terrible news, or probably both. As the technician spoke in Lloyd George's ear, Fitzwilliam found that he had stopped talking altogether to hear what the man was saying. Lloyd George noticed that all eyes were upon him, and he thanked the technician before standing. Fitzwilliam obediently sat down. Thank you, Sir Arthur, and I apologise for the interruption. Gentlemen, I am afraid I have just been handed grave news. It seems that several mutinies have broken out across many of our garrisons within Belgium, along the Rhine, and even at the naval base in Brest. Apparently, several Bolshevik tracts were found among the mutineers. There were gasps among the delegates. Do we know the source of the mutiny, Prime Minister? Sir Robert Borden asked. After a moment of hesitation, Lloyd George replied, It seems that the soldiers and naval personnel refuse to venture to Russia. Reportedly, there is much disaffection among our soldiery that the war has not been brought to an end. You are, of course, aware of the criticism which this government endures in the old liberal press. Why, some have even proclaimed my intentions to spread war across all the world's continents. I am certain that Bolshevism is involved in these evils, especially in light of our winning efforts against the Bolsheviks in Russia. The connection makes perfect sense. Sean T. O'Kelly, less prone to sugarcoating, then offered his opinion. Prime Minister, is it possible that these men genuinely wish to return to their families and have grown weary of war? Some have been fighting for nearly five years after all. Perhaps it is the human spirit rather than the rebellious spirit which we need to consider. O'Kelly instantly felt all eyes boring holes in him. Thank you, Mr. O'Kelly, Fitzwilliam said. But I hardly think the resolve of our soldiery is so low as to be subject to such menial considerations. The men are tired, granted, but they are also bolstered by the righteousness of their cause. Lloyd George coughed before intervening himself. Forgive me, Sir Arthur, I was just informed by that technician, I am unsure of his name, that the final straw for many of the men was the rumour that they would shortly be deployed to the Middle East to help defend the regime of Hussein bin Ali, whose kingdom is, I understand, currently subject to several terrors. Prime Minister, Fitzwilliam replied, perhaps it would be wise to liaise with Sir Alistair Tancred, who is shortly to begin a meeting with the Italian Premier, Mr Bruce Pug of the American delegation, and the Spanish Premier? Indeed, Sir Arthur, thank you for the suggestion. I will talk with him this evening on the matter. With that, the Prime Minister seemed to mentally withdraw himself from the meeting. More presentations followed from the Irish and Canadian delegates, but by and large, these had faded into the background of the Prime Minister's mind. A mutiny in the Royal Navy and the Army at the same time? Could it be true? Perhaps the Irishman was right. Perhaps after more than four years of war, all of these commitments were simply several bridges too far. Lloyd George steadied himself. He was among the living proof of the Empire's vitality. This was only a small blip on the horizon, nothing more, and he would deal with it appropriately. I have never challenged the mission of the British Empire, Sir Alistair, but you must admit that such conversations as these are a terrible distraction from the proper business of the conference. Bruce Pug's voice was clearly strained, as was the patience of each man in the room. The room itself was small, barely large enough to walk around in, and evidently meant only for four men, for there were four chairs. Vittorio Orlando, Sir Alistair Tancred, Bruce Pug, 
Antonio Mora filled the room. No record was taken of their conversation. This was a healing exercise, but also a potentially useful bridge-building exercise so late in the day. The intimacy of the room was a bonus, for it meant that no unpopular opinions could hide. The present conversation was long overdue, as rumours had abounded regarding the Middle East for some time. Mr. Pug, our friendship is considerable, but you must appreciate my position as a representative of the British Empire, and my interest, therefore, in arriving at a peaceful solution in the corners of this empire. Bruce Pug sighed, and Vittorio Orlando interjected. Sir Alistair, I must confess I was suspicious when I learned of my invitation for this small gathering, but as I understand it, Britain owes the Kingdom of Italy an apology for spreading unsubstantiated slanders about her. My mission is difficult enough as it is. I find that wherever I go, I'm criticised for furthering some world Jewish conspiracy. I vehemently deny such accusations. The facts are as follows. Many months ago, an Arab kingdom was established which encapsulated the lands of all emirs and shahs in the Arabian region. Since the act was taken, a few weeks ago, Rome was informed of several uprisings against this kingdom, ruled by Hussein bin Ali. As far as our understanding of the event goes, Volunteers from Italy, as well as several other countries, took the opportunity to sponsor Jewish adventurers and settlers to the region of Palestine, with the goal of creating a Jewish national state of some form. It is true, as has been reported, that Mr. Bonifacio Fidel has thrown his lot in with these Jewish adventurers, but it is patently untrue that Rome seeks to set up some kind of Jewish nation-state under its protection. I would welcome an investigative committee to examine the situation on the ground in Palestine, because as of this moment, there is such a lack of information, I am concerned at acting prematurely and without due care. A short silence followed. It was impossible to make any expressions of disgust or regret, since the closed space ensured these would be instantly noticed. That had been the belief in the beginning of the meeting at least, but now it seemed like something of the gloves were off as the four men seemed on the verge of blows. Please, gentlemen, Antonio Mora said. There is no need for tempers to flare. It is true that more information is required to get a handle on the situation in Palestine and the wider Middle East. It is also true that no evidence exists to implicate Italy as the instigator of the violence there. However, if we speak of truth, then we must also speak truthfully of the Italian regime and the Balkans. At that, Vittorio Orlando interrupted Antonio Mora. There is no such regime in the Balkans, Signor Mora, and I would urge you not to present Italian rule there as something akin to dictatorial. Thanks to Italian aid and support, the peoples of Croatia, Slovenia and Albania are free to pursue their national interests as nation-states rather than under the actual dictatorship of the Serbian king. Need I remind you that the current dynasty of Serbia, the Karadjordjevic dynasty, murdered its predecessors and seized the throne in a blood coup in 1903? With such facts under consideration, how can any democratic country approve of Belgrade's merciless imposition of its will over free Balkan states? It's a mystery to the Italian government and to me. Bruce Pug then interjected. Thank you, gentlemen, for your contributions, but, Signor Mora and Sir Alistair, I must inquire as to your intentions with regard to the Middle East. Signor Orlando mentioned an investigative committee to ascertain the situation in Palestine. I've heard mention of soldiers accompanying these observers, but as far as I understand it, soldiers are now in short supply owing to recent demonstrations in military installations manned by British and Spanish troops. Mora then responded. 
Mr. Pug, I must offer a correction. Spanish soldiers are not in a state of mutiny and are merely honouring the Pact of Cartagena by aiding British soldiers with their administrative duties. Perhaps Senior Mora is aware that the vast majority of his soldiers are ill with the flu, Orlando said, to which Mora responded sharply, I remind my honourable friend not to contribute to such rumours. He must know, as do I, that the Spanish flu is not a Spanish creation, but a regrettable result of Spain's commitment to a free and liberal press. Orlando scoffed, and Mora pretended not to hear him. Tancred then attempted to rescue the situation. Gentlemen, camerheads must prevail here. Signor Orlando, I apologise if I may have unintentionally fanned rumours surrounding the involvement of your country in the Middle Eastern schemes. I assure you that these rumours did not originate with me. Mr. Pug, it is indeed an acutely dangerous situation for all the delegates involved in this conference, for we are in genuine danger of running out of time. I commit myself and my colleagues to work to resolve the present shortcomings of the German peace treaty. Finally, Signor Mora, I must offer my heartfelt apologies on my country's recent troubles. I have been assured that the Bolsheviks are involved and are working to sabotage Britain's efforts to repair Russia. Monsieur Robotnik has informed me that the Russian mission is proceeding well, but inevitably there will be those hardliner Bolsheviks who seek to undermine my country's position. I have requested that the Prime Minister investigate whether men can be sent home on leave, and if reservists can be called up, as these servicemen are understandably weary after so many years of war and so many post-war commitments. You have my word that Britain continues to work for a truly satisfactory peace, both within Europe and without. Indeed, I look forward to working with you all on this German peace treaty in the future. But I regret that I must now take leave to liaise with the Prime Minister regarding the recent meeting of the Dominion delegations. Good day, gentlemen, and thank you for your time here. Sir Alistair Tankred rose from the chair and walked across the plush carpet, his feet plodding over it as he did so. It was a short walk to the door, but the silence which greeted his exit felt painfully long. The gathering of four had been an ingenious idea, but there was evidently many sensitive feelings, many no-go areas for discussion, and still more pent-up resentments that would have to be overcome before genuine progress could be made on a German treaty. As all four men certainly realised, though, said treaty could not be made without them. Philip Scheidemann rubbed his temples for what felt like the umpteenth time. Perhaps this impromptu gathering of delegates from across the board hadn't been the best idea. The purpose had originally been for the Austro-German delegates to ingratiate themselves on the minor powers with some significant Swiss help. Unfortunately though, someone had neglected to choose between the Hungarian or Romanian delegates and had invited both instead. Even Felix Kalender, veteran mediator that he was, was struggling to keep his composure. There was just something about Yuan Bratianu that got under his skin. Maybe it was the excessive cigarette smoking. Maybe it was the self-indulgent way he made speeches. Maybe it was the way he would present himself, like a slimy salesman of questionable wares. Bratianu, of course, was out to sell an idea, and here he believed he had the advantage. My friends, he kept trying to say, before being drowned out by other voices. Suddenly, a loud and unfamiliar sound came from the corner of the large room where the delegates were assembled. It sounded like some oriental gong belonging to a far eastern court. Sure enough, Prince Sharoon of Siam was stood next to what appeared to be that very instrument for restoring order. Sharoon had told Scheidemann that he had brought it with him from home, but that he believed it would probably come in useful. Certainly it was invaluable today. 
The sudden sound made the delegates freeze and remember their training. All eyes turned to Scheidemann. Thank you, Your Excellency, Scheidemann said. Gentlemen, I hope you will forgive the interruption, but it is well past time that we began to discuss some proper ideas. We've managed to gain limited access to the proposed draft of the peace treaty for Germany. This treaty is certainly better than the former Western Front peace treaty, but that would hardly be a challenge. Today, my colleagues and I wish to impress upon you the central role which Germany can play in the development of your nation and the good relationship we wish to maintain with you. Do not be distracted or fooled by events in Russia, in the Middle East or elsewhere. The main event of this conference has always been the German treaty. Unfortunately, the extreme tardiness of the Allied parties leads us to believe that we will only barely have enough time to consider the peace treaty and present counter-proposals to the Allied powers. We are thus asking you today to join us in solidarity and friendship, not in any formal treaties, but in a declaration to the effect that justice must serve as the foundation stone for any peace treaty which Germany signs. I also wish to thank Mr. Kalender for agreeing to join us today in the interest of fairness and peace. Mr. Kalender is, I am sure you will all agree, a very distinguished and talented negotiator, and today we hope he will be in a position to help traverse the differences we all have and to remind us of the common interests we all share. Scheidemann sat down, and Felix Kalender rose to his feet, clearing his throat as he did so. Thank you, Your Excellency. There is no need to mince words, gentlemen. This is the gravest challenge in peacemaking which there has ever been in human history. Not since the Congress of Vienna a century ago has our race so struggled with the task of bringing war to an end. I regret that many hours have been spent on needless distractions and furthering petty rivalries. As he said this, the overall focus of the room shifted towards Yuan Bratianu, who coughed and then chuckled nervously, puffing still more urgently on his cigarette. Kalender continued, But, gentlemen, this is in the past. Before us lies the future of the world, and after spending so many years across the trenches from one another, it is a good thing indeed that this conference provides us with the opportunity to stand shoulder to shoulder, like soldiers in a sense, but by using weapons of a different sort. We are joined by General Paul von Leto Vorbeck, a successful commander of German and colonial forces, a fact which cannot be denied. The man's resourcefulness and ability, even from a neutral perspective such as my own, is impossible to ignore. Thus his authority on military matters in Germany deserves attention. Further, I wish to pass on to him. The eyes of the room moved to Paul von Leto Vorbeck, who rose gingerly from his chair and began speaking. Thank you, Monsieur Kalender. Gentlemen, I am a man of action and not of words, but unfortunately there are times in one's life when words must be made do. These are the facts. Germany and Austria are two countries with millions of people earnestly in need of a peace. The situation is quite acute, and the emergency will only worsen as time goes on. I am not here to threaten you with tales of what Bolshevik nightmare will befall my country if common sense does not prevail. You already know that my Bavarian colleague opposite me, Herr Hoffmann, has solved the Bolshevik problem in his country without firing a shot. By and large, following the suppression of the criminal and alien Spartacists, Bolshevism has not dared to tread on German land. Instead, what we face is the threat of starvation and despair. In the modern world, where Bolshevism looms so large, we forget that anarchism once took its place as the most fearsome and destructive of the ideologies. But anarchy threatens Germany now, gentlemen, due to the disruptive nature of the war, the tired German spirit and hungry German mouths. 
We are a peaceful people, by and large. For centuries, Germans were known not for war, but for words, for culture, for music. That heart beats in Germany still, but it is in need of resuscitation if all of Europe is not to be held back. I urge you all then, gentlemen, please remember Germany when the time comes to give your views on the peace treaty that concerns my countrymen. Remember us not as the enemy of the last four years, but as your friend and as the centre of European civilization, a position we have held for the last 400 years. Karl Renner barely waited for Paul von Leto Vorbeck to sit down before he stood up himself. Felix Kalender shushed some members of the audience. Bratianu was getting restless, it seemed, and the Austrian Chancellor then began to speak. Gentlemen, I promise to not detain you any longer than is necessary. Thank you for coming to meet with us today, and I hope these relations will prove useful. You have been invited because the German people have hope of a deep and lasting friendship with you. Following the collapse of so many empires, including my own, it is impossible to know what the future holds for Europe, and the east of that continent in particular. I think I am in the majority when I say that I hope war is not included in this future. It is time for this diverse range of peoples to live in harmony, and I am greatly encouraged at the work of men like Monsieur Kalender, who was laboured to make the best out of a bad situation. Austrians were weary at the prospect of a failed League of Nations idea, because we hoped it would serve our small country well. Monsieur Kalender's successful passage of an annual international congress does put steel into Austrian hearts, though, and we are therefore hopeful that the peaceful resolution of disputes will naturally follow. I urge in particular the former appendages of the Habsburg monarchy, Monsieur Benesch of Czechoslovakia and Lady Nora Chok of Hungary to consider their future with Austria. Short of fulfilling our national destiny and uniting with our German brothers in the north, a new era of friendship with our old partners is to be desired indeed. As Karl Renner sat down to polite applause, the Greek premier Venizelos suddenly stood up, taking everyone by surprise. Gentlemen and lady, he began, I apologise for my urgency, but I wish to impress upon you how urgently the situation at Smyrna requires your attention. Currently, there is danger of the Christian and Greek population coming under severe attack. As you are aware, gentlemen, this cradle of civilization. You already landed soldiers there, Venizelos, came the loud proclamation from the Romanian Premier, who hadn't even bothered to stand up. Venizelos, taken aback, hesitated, and Bratianu then jumped into the opportunity. Surely it would be better, Monsieur Venizelos, to repair the regions of Europe that have not received sufficient attention. If my Austro-German friends can propose some solution to the Transylvanian problem, which the Allied powers can then approve, then I will be forever in their debt. Romania stands proudly as the beacon of democracy against Bolshevism to the east and absolutism in the west. I wonder why no delegate seeks to condemn Hungary's newest excuse for a government. Why, an exiled Habsburg prince, who ever heard of such a thing? It was only inevitable that Lady Nora Chalk would answer the challenge, but she did not. She stood up and, wowing those present with her grace and dignity as she did so, said in a strong voice, Monsieur Bratianu, in the spirit of Monsieur Kalender's admirable pleas to overcome petty rivalries, I urge you to cease from raising such needlessly provocative questions. We are not here to score points, Monsieur, but to carve a lasting peace out of the corpse of war. I trust you wish Romania to be included in said peace, and if you do, I look forward to your full cooperation. Before Bratianu could say anything, Kalender interjected. Thank you, my lady, 
Your consideration and calmness is much appreciated under the present circumstances. Indeed, there is no reason why even the most difficult of questions cannot be resolved through promised negotiations. In the future, to coincide with the successful resolution of the Austrian peace treaty, I recommend a solution for Transylvania which will be subject to a commission, and perhaps a plebiscite if needs be. For now, though, I believe I speak for all of us present, when I urge that no further discussion of the problems afflicting Romanian and Hungarian relations should take place. Indeed, came a voice at the back of the room. It was Edward Benesch, the Czech foreign minister. Monsieur Benesch, Kalender exclaimed with some sincerity. It is good to see you here with us. How have you been? Much better. Thank you, Monsieur, Benesch replied. Fortunately, my health is not the subject of my representation. Today I have been invited to speak to the German delegates on behalf of the Czechoslovak party, and it is my honour to do so, but I will not pretend that the task is an easy one. My country was split between the different empires, and, historically, Bohemia and Moravia were never independent or truly free to decide their future. That ends after this conference, and indeed, Czech independence is a fact of European life, a fact which is a boon to all true Czech patriots. Unlike my Romanian friend, the Czech people were not defeated in this war. Instead, we held out against all odds, in fronts as varied as the Alps and the Russian Civil War. Unlike my Hungarian friend, the Czechs chose the correct side of history to fight on. We have no regrets, only requests, that now Germans and Austrians and Greeks and Romanians and Hungarians and everyone else accept my country's rightful place. We are at the centre of Europe in a geographic sense, the crossroads of all communications between East and West, and consequently the epicentre of any future war which must break out. Let us state here clearly and forcefully that war will not darken our continent again. I urge that a peace treaty be reached with Germany as soon as possible, and with Austria immediately after that. Through those processes, we will return peace and cooperation to Europe. We will never be the same after the recent war, friends. But there is no reason why we should not be better than before, if the combined efforts of the people in this room are contributed towards the cause of good. Thank you. After a short applause, Kalender whispered for a moment to the Germans. The sound began to rise in the room once more, and once more Prince Sharoon felt it appropriate to strike the gong where he still stood. Charles Shear took the opportunity which the momentary stunning of the room provided to make his own presentation. Thank you, Your Grace. Thank you, my friends, in this room. I represent Alsatians, the province formerly under the direct rule of Berlin, and before that France, and before that a plaything of great empires throughout the ages. I empathise with my honourable friend from Prague, but I urge him to recognise that few peoples in this world seek an earnest resolution to this war as much as the peoples of Alsace-Lorraine. Until this peace is reached, we exist in a state of flux. I have urged my friends in the relevant delegations over the past few months, and generally done all that I can to bring some clarity to the question of my country, yet I mostly met with scorn and confusion. These feelings I understand, but to resolve the crisis of Alsace-Lorraine, we must first resolve the crisis of this peace conference. Gentlemen, I speak plainly, for there is no other way to speak. We have let many people down over the course of this conference. We have, it is unfortunate and true to say, weathered some truly terrible storms and traumatic experiences, the likes of which delegates should never have to endure. Yet we remain intact, as does Europe, but for how long? 
A Bolshevik tide is not what I fear. I understand that that tide will soon be subsumed by our brave warriors fighting for democracy in Russia. No, gentlemen, what I fear is the power of apathy, an apathy so strong it consumes all sense of reason and progresses quickly to depression. We have already made the peoples of Europe apathetic and disinterested thanks to our self-absorbed and self-indulgent expressions. I am just as guilty of this crime. Yet I believe that now, to show our fellow citizens that their sacrifices have not been in vain, we must do better. We must present to them a future which they can believe in, lest they decide that they do not believe in us at all. Felix Kalender applauded loudly. Thank you, Monsieur Scheer. Take no gentleman of the dangers in delaying any further. The world is watching our every move now, and posterity will judge us even more harshly later if we fail. While we all ask for different things, we stand united on the quest for peace. If man stands united, then who can stand against him? The devil himself could not bring me to experience war again. I am convinced that no cause is worth the bones of a single man, or the broken heart of a widower or child. The League of Nations may be dead, so it seems, but the International Congress is fully alive, and if you prove willing, I believe that there is much we can achieve together. Paul von Leto Vorbeck then rose to his feet. Gentlemen, this has been a most informative meeting. Thank you. In the last 24 hours I have received word that the blockade of German shores has been significantly relaxed and now forbids only military contraband. This is an example of the power which diplomatic negotiation can have. Myself and Chancellor Scheidemann are optimistic that with your support not only will Germany be able to feed itself again, but Germany will be able to work for Europe and for all of you just as she should have done originally. Kalender nodded at the old Junker, and Valnetto Vorbeck sat down. They had said all they could say, and they had not been shouted out of the room by their former enemies. It remained to be seen now if they could work with these former enemies, or if the last four years would be in vain. Several rooms away, President Wilson remained laid low in his presidential suite. The adjoining room had become something of a staging post, where distinguished statesmen would go and ask the American president outside the door to let the president know they had asked after him. On a rare occasion, an audience with the ill world leader might be granted. This latter possibility was certainly what one nerve-wracked Pole was angling for. Please give my heartfelt condolences to the president, said a drawn-looking Paderewski to Walter Cameron. Walter Cameron smiled weakly. The Polish pianist certainly had a heart, but the true extent of the crisis which Wilson's collapse had caused was still not fully felt. Your message is appreciated, Monsieur Paderewski. I know Mr. Wilson will be encouraged to hear that you called on him personally. He is not in the room? Paderewski asked, hoping perhaps to get some glimpse of the crippled president before he left. Oh, he is present in the room, Monsieur, but his state is very delicate. Last week we attempted to impose upon him far too many responsibilities and questions. Even with Mr. House's intermediary, it has proved too much. What will you do now with the leadership question of the delegation? Paderewski asked. Walter Cameron thought for a moment, and then decided to tell Paderewski most of the truth. That he and Bruce Pug were to serve as advisers for Teddy Roosevelt, and that this three-man team would effectively rule the delegation in London, while Vice President Thomas Marshall covered for Wilson back home. After telling Paderewski this, the Poles still had many questions. Where was Teddy Roosevelt? 
How long would this arrangement last for? Was it constitutionally viable? All of them, Walter Cameron answered to the best of his ability. Yet he remained relaxed. Paderewski was a good man, and genuinely cared for the President's well-being, unlike many of the opportunists who came to snipe at the President in his moment of difficulty. Paderewski indicated that he was about to leave when the door into Wilson's bedroom slowly opened, and Oliver Flanagan, Joseph Zahn, and William Randolph Hearst emerged. Paderewski looked at them inquisitively, and then to Walter Cameron, as if to say, Why them and not me? before Hearst answered for him. Monsieur Paderewski, we were giving the President his daily update. He can only bear about an hour of such attention each day, so it is better not to crowd him. Paderewski nodded, and the three American delegates left the adjoining room, where Paderewski and Walter Cameron had been talking. As they left, Premier Poincaré and René Massigli entered. Walter Cameron sighed. Gentlemen, I appreciate your coming to meet with Mr. Wilson, but I regret that he is far too unwell to see anyone. Poincaré paused, perhaps expecting an audience similar to the one he had had over the last few days with Wilson, before it was decided that this had been too much for the ill president. Poincaré simply nodded then, but René Massigli piped up. Mr. Cameron, I was hoping to talk briefly with an American plenipotentiary about the resolution of the German peace treaty, with President Marshal Ferdinand Foch currently still paying his respects in Warsaw, I felt it was the ideal time to engage in such conversations. Walter Cameron nodded. Thanks to Teddy Roosevelt's similar trip to Warsaw and Bruce Pug's handling of the Middle Eastern situation, that likely left him in charge of the German peace, at least for the moment. Of course, Monsieur Massigli, I would happily speak to you about this matter, but I am currently tasked with holding the fort here. Massigli nodded in acknowledgement, and Paderewski, still present, interjected, Gentlemen, the resolution of the German treaty is what I have been searching for as well. Poland's borders, as you know, have been the subject of much discord, unfortunately. Like you, I am sure and a colleague, thanks to General Pilsudski's entertaining of several international guests at Warsaw. I ask you then, what is a better friendship to maintain than that historically grounded one between France, America and Poland? Perhaps we could reach some kind of agreement, however limited, now. Walter Cameron was certainly considering it. Poincaré, now seated in one of the many chairs in this waiting area, offered his two cents. The most important thing is the German treaty, otherwise she'll be back at France's throat within a generation, and back to steel Alsace once again. Monsieur Paderewski, my country's continental defence accord with your country, is the cornerstone of French defence in the post-war era, as is French participation in the Pact of Cartagena. Perhaps Monsieur Cameron can inform us how likely it would be that the United States might enter into a similar arrangement. Walter Cameron blinked and hesitated. Did the French Premier just ask the United States to join an alliance? Which alliance was that? Was it the continental one with France, Poland and some other Eastern European states? Or was it the Mediterranean Pact of Cartagena with France, Spain and Britain? What a mystery these European diplomatic practices were. Walter Cameron attempted to wade in on the issue nonetheless. Gentlemen, surely you know that Congress has the power in such questions, not I, and in fact not even the President, why Mr. Wilson had been working towards wresting some kind of guarantee for the continuation of the wartime alliance from Congress before he was laid low. Paderewski nodded, but Massigli then said, Mr. Cameron, we do not search for a binding treaty, just a vow of friendship. Surely you can offer that. Cameron smiled, 
but internally hesitated. Was he being set up to entrap himself? He gave as non-committal but well-wishing a reply as he could, saying, Of course, Monsieur Massigli, France will always enjoy the hand of friendship of the United States, just as Poland can always count on American friendship. Foreign entanglements are what vex my countrymen, though, so while I would like to, personally, I must not say more. Poincaré nodded knowingly, and Paderewski added, Oh, Mr. Cameron, I hear that Americans missed the boat on the Russian expedition. My third cousin has wrote me from the front in recent days. Apparently the Bolshevik threat is not at all so serious as we thought. They'll be home by Christmas. Thousands of miles away, as torrential rain turned roads into mud and positivity into despair, a veteran Australian commander wrestled with his conscience. Behind them, along overextended supply lines, were guaranteed to be Bolshevik partisans. In front of them, an even more severe enemy. Kiev had been captured, but the strategic prognosis was not good. It seemed the rations which had been supplied were more than three quarters spoiled. Rumour had it, a Bolshevik spy had deliberately done that evil work. That was bad enough, but the mosquitoes and the fever, these were far worse. Men were dropping faster than they could be replaced by a horrific virus which, he had been told, also continued to wage havoc in Western Europe. The white Russian forces seemed intent on going into business for themselves and were more interested in looting Kiev's shopping districts than helping his forces secure that city's winding streets. Was their expedition doomed to grind to a halt less than a week after setting out? Surely not. It was unacceptable. He had to push on, but who could he trust? Not their guides, who were Bolsheviks by sympathy, and not the maps, which seemed utterly warped from reality. All he could trust was his gut, but he knew that he had to ignore it if the greatest shame was not to be perpetrated here. Perhaps some miracle would present itself. Perhaps the Bolsheviks really were buckling under the strain. Or perhaps... Perhaps he was about to rush headlong into the greatest disaster in Allied arms, seen since the first day of the Somme. He had to drown out the doubts, though they gnawed at his heart and mind. General David Whiteside McKay took a deep breath and ordered his subordinate to prepare to move out of Kiev. Come hell or high water, they would meet the Bolsheviks in the field, if it was the last thing he ever did. And that, history friends and delegates, is the end of the episode. We've nothing to vote on this week, so just remember to keep working on that German peace treaty, and I'll see you all in two weeks' time for episode 17 on Saturday the 8th of June. Until then, though, my name is Zach. You've been a wonderful delegate. I have been the Delegation Master. Thanks for listening and playing, and I'll be seeing you all next time. Dildo, I understand, has enjoyed such lubricant, for it was that dildo that... (laughs) Okay, let me try that again. Dildo, (laughs) oh my god, you're really killing me. Dildo, I don't (laughs) want...
<clears throat> Dildo, I understand. <laughs> oh my God, come on. Oh. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 